There's a, a very simple, very old Anglican prayer. It's been put to music by Dave and Paul Thompson. Um, I heard it when it was done as a choral piece and beautiful. Uh, but the words are, of the prayer are simply this, Lord, what we do not know, teach us. What we do not have, give us. And what we are not, make us for your son's sake. It should be your, make us for your son's sake. Simple prayer. But you know, it's my prayer that this prayer will become our prayer from, from today on. I've been asked more than once how I decide what I'm going to preach about from Sunday to Sunday. Um, it's actually a very different process when I'm asked to speak somewhere special uh, than it is uh, on our regular uh, sermons because uh, actually the more difficult task for me, having been here now for just over six years, is to decide on what book of the Bible or what section of the Bible will be our focus. And once we've made that decision, which by the way, I have made the decision for where we're going to go when I come back. This series on Daniel is going to take us right up to uh, the last Sunday before I'm gone to Zimbabwe. When I come back, we're going to focus for many weeks on three chapters in the Bible. The Lord's Sermon on the Mount. I'm going to do a whole sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount when I come back. Um, and that came about by a book that I was reading and was blessed by um, and some other things that I've dug out. So um, just so you know ahead of time, if you want to be reading, and let me uh, preface that by saying, if you really want to be prepared, read Isaiah chapters 40 to 66 uh, also. I kind of gave a hint there, didn't I? The more difficult task is choosing where we're going to go. Once we've chosen that, my process is basically known by an, an acronym, and it's SKIOTS. I do a systematic, consecutive exposition of the Scriptures. And that's not new, by the way. Hannah can tell you that for whatever she remembers when she was a little girl, that's what I did at Martinton. We preached through books in the Bible. And part of the reason why I do that is because I, I, I don't go into topical series very often uh, because I really believe that we need to know God's Word and the principles that are found in God's Word for daily living. Much more than we need a sermon on a topic, like a whole series on just love. And, and if I did that, it would still be expositional because I don't know what else to preach from other than this book. We'll never do a book study unless it's one of the books in this book uh, from this pulpit as long as I'm here. Uh, but we need to know God's Word. And the other thing, doing it this way, it helps me 
to avoid not preaching on a passage that's a difficult passage. Like Daniel 7 that's before us today. However, before I go into our text for today, I, I want to revisit a topic that I hit on briefly as we were concluding last Sunday. And that is the belief in God's sovereignty. I shared with you how beliefs in the providence or the sovereignty of God range on a continuum from the extreme of theism on one side where people believe that God, there is a God, there is a creator God, but He created the world and then He just removed Himself from it and is sitting back and watching as things work its way out. On the other extreme of that spectrum is what I have chosen to call micromanagement. And micromanagement is the belief, whether you realize it or not, it's the belief that we as individuals have no true freedom. The belief that God has decided everything. And people with this belief, whether or not they know they believe in micromanagement, these people are the ones that you'll hear quoting as if it were literally true and quoting it in a very wooden fashion such passages as, well the Bible says God knows the number of hairs on your head. Or even the belief that God knows the exact number of days that we're going to live. Unfortunately, those people have missed the real depth of meaning that's to be found in passages like those two. For some reason, they're not able to cope with some of the tensions that exist. For example, we believe that Jesus is God, right? And that we believe that since Jesus is God, obviously, He also would know all things. But sometimes we forget to realize that Jesus Himself said that in Philippians especially, that He emptied Himself of some of those God attributes and He humbled Himself as a servant becoming a man. And <laughs> He even says He doesn't know the day nor the hour of the judgment day. I guess He should ask some of the people that are living today that have all their charts and, and dates and everything set out and how all of this applies to this and that applies to that. Jesus should be asking them all about it so that he could know too. Uh, in many cases, the center of the struggle is what's really known as the locus of control. Whether a person can or cannot influence the direction and the outcome of their life. Here's the question. Are we truly free or has God decided and predestined everything that's going to take place? Yes. The Bible, Paul specifically, uses the term predestined in Ephesians 1. But go back and read it carefully. He didn't predestine some to be saved. And in extreme applications, as some actually believe, some believe that God predestined some to be lost. 
Paul says God's choice from the foundation of the world was to put a plan into place that would enable us to be holy and blameless. And that what was predestined was the adoption as sons. For us, through Christ's blood, to actually be able to be adopted as sons and daughters of the living God. That's what was predestined. Not whether you choose to be a part of that or I choose to be a part of that. What was predestined was the whole plan. And so, we need to remember. let Let me back up. Do you realize that there is something that God wants that He cannot have? You ever stop to think about that? Something that God, all-powerful, all-knowing, all-loving, something that He wants that by His own decisions He cannot have. Paul writes to Timothy, God our Savior desires everyone to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants everybody to be saved. And if God is all powerful, and that's what He wants, why doesn't He make sure it's going to happen? Why do we read in the Bible that there are in fact people who are going to be lost if God wants everybody to be saved and He's all powerful and all loving? You see, because God created us in His image as co-creators. And as created in His image and as co-creators, you and I have freedom. We have freedom to choose. And we even have freedom to rebel and reject the love of God as awesome as it is when we really get to understand and know it. Additionally, and you know, you realize that those who believe that God has everything worked out and all of these plans micromanaged. You, you realize that what that says is God sitting up there with a thing in His hand and strings hanging from it and we're just marionettes down underneath going about what God is having us do. No. That is not what the Bible teaches. In fact, read the book of Psalms. God's heartbroken sometimes at what we choose to do. He grieves at what we choose to do. I also mentioned though briefly that the Bible identifies Satan, the evil one, as the ruler of this world. 1 John 5.19 We know we are from God and the whole world lies in the power of the evil one. Jesus identified Satan as the ruler of the world three times. John 12, 31, John 14, 30, and John 16, 11. And each, in each of those cases, there's a limit imposed. 
It's not the old duo idea of a God, good God and an evil God fighting it out and whoever has the most power wins. No. God is always supreme and though Satan has a lot of power, Satan's power is always limited. For instance, in John 12, 31, we're told by Jesus that Satan will be driven out. 1430, Jesus said that Satan has no power over him. And in 1611, Jesus said, He is already condemned. So, we need to keep in mind that, especially when you say, well, oh, it must have been God's will. No! It might have been the devil. Just because the church is a megachurch from our call to worship doesn't mean that it's a godly church. There are a lot of really big churches that are really big because they preach messages that are all warm and fuzzy and Joe Osteen. He said, oh, I don't talk about the devil and sin. That's, that's negative. That brings people down. Aren't you glad that bottles that are poison are marked that they're poison? That you know that? I mean, I'm glad the Bible tells me clearly about the devil and what he does and the power that he does so that I have more power to resist him. Again, the issue is the locus of control. Differentiating between the now and the not yet. I am going to be a diamond someday. But right now, I'm still a lump of coal in many ways. I think one of the best passages to help us understand the now and the not yet is found in Hebrews, Hebrews chapter uh, 2, verses 6 to 9, where the writer of Hebrews says, but someone has testified somewhere, what are human beings that you are mindful of them or mortals that you take care of them? Actually, it's in the Psalms, but they didn't have a book to get in and look in the concordance and everything. You have made them for a while lower than the angels. You have crowned them with glory and honor, subjecting all things under their feet. Now, in subjecting all things to them, God left nothing outside their control. But as it is, we do not yet see everything in subjection to them. But we do see Jesus, who for a little while was made lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. There is a now and there is a not yet. And when Satan is understood as the ruler of this world, and since we don't know yet everything 
in subjection. I think it's fitting that one writer has said that what we have in Daniel 7 is actually a vision of a scary primeval sea roaring wind and with monsters. Now as I said last Sunday, Daniel 7 is the first of the vision chapters in the book. Which is why most people identify chapters 7 to 12 under the term apocalyptic. You might have heard that word. It simply means something that involves visions. And chapters 1 to 6 that we've already looked at were mostly stories told in the third person. The stories that we're familiar with. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in the fiery furnace. Daniel in the lion's den. Chapter 7, however, begins the first person account of the visions of Daniel. Visions which revealed the big picture of God's working His plan out in history. And chapter 7, I believe, is very important and stands at the head of the mountain, so to speak. We've been climbing up chapters 1 to 6. Daniel 7 is right there at the top before we ascend down on the other side. And it's the last of the Aramaic chapters. What I find interesting also is that chapters 2 to 7, even though I told you there's this division at the end of chapter 6, chapters 2 to 7 are in what was known as a chiastic structure. So that chapter 2 and chapter 7 have elements in parallel. Chapters 3 and chapter 6 had things in parallel. And so did chapters 4 and 5. And you see, you don't get that if you just read a verse here and read a verse there. Or if someone preaches a sermon from a verse here or a verse there. We've got to sit down and read these books in their entirety to get the big picture. To get what it is that Daniel's really trying to say. And so in terms of the setting, though it follows chapter 6 in our Bibles, and though it follows the proclamation of King Darius, we actually move back in time. Because the events of chapter 7 occur in the earlier time frame of chapter 5. Chapter 7 verse 1 says, In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and a vision. Now we're not going to read the entire chapter 7. I hope you'll do that. But I think what we're going to do is see how this vision, uh, made up of four beasts that rise out of the sea, gives us a glimpse also a glimpse of the throne room of God and the bestowal of an eternal kingdom on a human figure of some form. And in terms of the chiastic structure, the chapter's portrayal of the four beasts, the four kingdoms, superseded by a fifth eternal kingdom, is parallel to Nebuchadnezzar's dream in chapter 2, the dream that was especially troublesome, you remember, because he couldn't even remember the dream. And yet Daniel told him what his dream was, as well as the meaning of it. And it was a dream about a tall image with four metals, a head of gold, a midsection of silver, and bronze, and then a waist of 
uh, of, uh, come on, brain. Uh, oh, the, the chest and arms of silver in the middle of bronze. And then legs of iron and toes that also were, had some stone in them. Now, we read about a vision that Daniel had himself. But instead of the metals and stone, it was a vision of the great churning of four beasts out of the sea. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the some matter of it. Daniel knew there was something important about the dream. And let me encourage you from training I've had in my past. If you're having dreams, maybe even troubling dreams, put a journal by your bedside with a pen so that you can wake up and immediately write down what you can remember because as the day goes on, we tend to forget them really quickly. He wrote down the dream and told the son that. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea, and four great beasts came out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man, and the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one, like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. And as I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful, and exceedingly strong, it had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its head, feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it. It had ten horns. I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great things. As I looked, thrones were placed, and the Ancient of Days took his seat. His clothing was white as snow, and the hair of his head like pure wool. His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him, and ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court sat in judgment, and the books were opened. The books were opened. But notice, it doesn't say anything about the book, singular, of life. I looked in because of the sound of the great words that the horn was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed, and his body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beast, the dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came like one like a son of man, and he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, and that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. 
and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. As for me, Daniel, my spirit within me was anxious, and the visions of my head alarmed me. I approached one of those who stood there and asked, asked him the truth concerning all this. So he told me and made known to me the interpretation of the things. These four great beasts are four kings who shall arise out of the earth. But the saints and the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, forever, and ever. May God add this blessing to our reading of this word. As we begin to dig into this text, I want us to begin, though, to jump down to verse 28 that I didn't read. Verse 28, the last of the chapter, says, Here is the end of the matter. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly alarmed me and my color was changed, but I kept the matter in my heart. I think that's important because I think it's important for us to see that Daniel wasn't excited and intrigued about the dream as many are today who try to chart these dreams and visions historically. Daniel writes, here's the end of the matter. I was greatly alarmed. My color changed. I kept the matter in my heart. I think one of the first things that we need to stress this morning is the importance of keeping our focus on the big picture. One thing that I can't stress enough is found in a little maxim. The main things are the plain things and the plain things are the main things. In the English Standard Version that I read, there are only 249 words describing all four of the beasts. Only 972 words in the entire chapter. Yet, people have written books upon book, hundreds of pages, discussing the identification and the meaning of those 249 words. Is it possible that we have missed seeing the forest because of our focus being on the trees. You see, using biblical imagery that's used elsewhere in the Bible, we can identify the four beasts easily. Daniel himself says they were kings and or kingdoms. And like the 90 foot tall image of chapter 2 that we have at the beginning, the lion with wings of an eagle stands for Babylon, Babylonia. And we're told that that hybrid animal becomes human-like. Didn't Nebuchadnezzar get his wings plucked and move around like an animal until he was finally lifted back up again and given the mind of a man again? By the way, Jeremiah was fond of comparing Nebuchadnezzar to both a lion and to an eagle. And... I think this is really interesting. Winged lions, lions with wings, when they did the excavations, were found decorating the processional way in Babylon. It's a no-brainer. 
the, that beast is Babylon. And just as both the iron and the eagle are predators, so is the second beast that rises out of the sea, a bear. Now isn't that a strange situation if you're trying to apply this literally to think of a bear coming out of the sea? The fact that it had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth? Again, the remains of victims. And very reminiscent of the great three victories that the Medo-Persian alliance had. Lydia fell to Cyrus in 546. Babylon, again, uh, Cyrus annexed in 539. And Egypt, Cambyses acquired in 525. Further, the double-sided nature of the Medo-Persian Empire is symbolized by the beast in that the bear raised up on one side. The Persian side of the Medo-Persian Empire was stronger than the Median side. The third beast, the leper, that had four heads and four wings, the, the emphasis is upon how blazingly fast it was, how terrifying it was, how with incredible speed it could capture and conquer. And isn't that what we know historically about Alexander the Great? He wasn't even yet 30 when he died and yet had captured all of the known world. And upon his death, there were four heads. Cassander ruled over the territory of Greece and Macedonia. Lysicamus over Thrace and a large part of Asia. Seleucus over Syria and much of the Middle East. And Ptolemy over Egypt. And finally that fourth beast. Nondescript really, but exceedingly powerful. In the Old Testament, horns symbolized power. And this beast had ten horns. Five times the natural number of two. I, and I don't think it's incidental that Rome had ten hills or even possibly that there were three, there were ten main Caesars of the Roman Empire. So I concur with those who have identified the beast with the Roman Empire. And the beasts are horrific. But their terror is relativized by the big picture. They come in rapid succession. Only 240 words. There are more important truths that Daniel is conveying than getting hung up on the identity of those four beasts. First of all, what is repeated in the successive verses is that the four beasts representing human kingdoms and human authority all came from the sea. Which was understood in that time, in biblical times, to represent chaos and evil. That's why in the devotional that I used for communion, the disciples are awed that the sea even obeys Jesus. Because that's chaos and evil. I think it's important that also that all four are predators. I think we need to take that to heart whenever we start looking for an earthly kingdom to do good. I don't care. Well, I do care. But it really doesn't matter who our next president is going to be. 
I'm 70 years old. We've had some that were good, some that were bad, some that were really good, kind of, and some that were really, really bad. Things have kind of moved on. What matters, and what matters in this vision of Daniel is to see that all four of these kingdoms come and go, but what remains is in fact the kingdom of God that's eternal. Secondly, that rapid succession, the terror of each beast is eclipsed by the fact that there is in fact something bigger. And I think that's even seen in the number of words that's used. It's short-lived. 249 words given the four beasts. Over 300 words of the chapter are given to the throne scene and the coming of the Son of Man. Just by mere word count. What's more important? You see, far greater importance is the inevitable victory of God's kingdom. And as Daniel watched, three scenes were brought quickly before his eyes. Parts of a tapestry. The first scene, verses 9 and 10, a vision of the throne of God. And in contrast to the previous scenes of the four beasts, it's marked by order and tranquility, not chaos. And while no connection is made between this and the second scene, verses 11 and 12, it's clearly implied that the judgment of God lies behind the destruction of the beasts and the breaking of the power of the other beasts. You see, before the Ancient of Days, which is a common identification for God, the kingdoms of this world are short-lived. His presence as a holy and righteous judge is conveyed by the impression of the burning brightness and the perfect whiteness. And by the way, we need to read carefully. This is not a picture of the final judgment. Did it mention anything about the book of life? No, it just talked about the books that recorded the deeds and specifically about the deeds of those four kingdoms represented by the beasts. Daniel 7 is not a picture of all eternity leading up to the final judgment. It's a picture of what was going to take place up to the coming of Jesus Christ. And we're going to come back to that when we look at all those 70s and 70 times 7 and all of that. I think many of us have missed the fact that the one like the Son of Man in that third scene where he's returning to the throne of, room of God, one like a son of man is presenting as coming to the Ancient of Days. Where is God? Where's the Ancient of Days? God, come on, that's not a rocket science question. Where's God? In heaven. 
So if the Son of Man is coming to the Ancient of Days, what is this a picture of? Jesus doing what? Going to heaven to be by God. It's not a picture of Jesus coming on the clouds to earth. It's a picture of the ascension. The kingdom that came with Jesus, and read the Gospels, read them clearly, closely, the kingdom that came with Jesus began with Jesus' ministry. If you see this, the kingdom is upon you, Jesus said. That eternal kingdom began with Jesus, and when He died, we're told that He ascended to where? To heaven. To the right hand of God. And what was given to him when he ascended to heaven to the right hand of God? All dominion and all authority and all power. And read Daniel 7. Isn't that the exact wording that Daniel is using regarding the Son of Man? You see, go back and read Hebrews chapters 1 to 5. What is important, the important task before us, is not the identity of the nations, but the characterization of the power. The main thing of Daniel 7, which is the plain thing, is that the human kingdoms are characterized by power struggles and the source, as pictured by means of the great turbulent chaotic sea, is Satan. The ruler of this world. I've read history. I know that there are a lot of people that came to this country seeking out an opportunity for religious freedom. But I've also read a lot of things about the early days of this nation that in no way would enable me to identify it as a Christian nation. Nor has it ever been. Nor has there been any manifest destiny on a part of the Scriptures with regard to the United States of America. Just like all the other kingdoms, just like all the other nations, it's represented more by evil than anything. Lord Acton, he said, power tends to corrupt and absolute power corrupts absolutely. Great men are almost always bad men, even when they exercise influence and not authority. Still more, when, you're, when you super add the tendency of the certainty of corruption by authority. Don't place your hope on any government or any governing agency. They are limited in terms of their duration, in terms of their authority, and in terms of their mercy and compassion. So here's my challenge for you today to remember. Though the victory is assured, the battles continue. I've read the end of Revelation. The victory is assured. But the battles are going to continue. Little Riley, she's going to face more temptations today than she did Thursday. Because the devil's going to jump on her. As well as the other campers this summer that have made recommitments of decisions. 
the devil is going to take the opportunity to bring whatever he may bring to evil if we allow it. But he's limited in power. And we have the ability, Jesus said, to withstand any temptation that comes upon us. The means will be provided. So we need to remember, though the victory is assured, though the victory is assured, there's still going to be battles. Daniel was affected both physically and mentally by the vision. And that should be an important lesson for all of us who believe that we have in some way had an unusual experience. Especially in the fact that he kept the matter to himself. Sometimes the best thing we can do when we've had a feeling or a vision is just to keep it to ourselves and go to the Word and find out what we can about what it might be that God's saying to us. Let's pray.